Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The month spent at home with his family during the pandemic gave the Atlanta artist Jamal Barber an expanded view of his Black identity. That new self-concept is depicted in his artwork on view now at the Mint Gallery, as we'll hear later this hour. First, consider the cemetery and art gallery. The events of Arts at Oakland 2021 will examine the intimacy of Oakland Cemetery through multiple lenses, as a space for individual and communal grief, as a space of community and tradition, and as a space for remembrance. Mary Margaret Fernandez is Special Events and Volunteer Manager for Oakland Cemetery. She joins us now with the artist Winnie Duong, whose work is featured Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having us. A cemetery isn't the first place that comes to mind when we think of an art exhibition. Why is Oakland a great location to showcase these installations? Well, perhaps a cemetery is the first thing that should come to mind, uh, because from their origins, particularly Oakland being a Victorian garden cemetery, it has been a place to showcase artists, um, specifically through the monuments that are on site, through the sculptural work, uh, and through the beautiful gardens and the work of the horticulturalists. So we're hoping to change what does come to your mind when you think of art and public art in particular. Hmm. How will these installations be set up throughout the cemetery? So the work of each artist is not directly related to each site within the cemetery where they're located, but they are positioned in places that are appropriate. So if an artist is engaging with images from the African diaspora, kind of situating that within the historic African-American burial grounds makes a lot of sense. We have another artist who, Tori Tinsley, uh, whose work engages with grief and and love and uh, and family. And so we ended up placing her work at a 
lot where we had a historic photo of two sons grieving their mother's death. And so that really engaged with the themes that Tori was tackling in her work. So there's some intention, there's quite a bit of intention as to where each work is located. Some of this year's themes for Arts at Oakland are those of individual and communal grief, community and tradition and remembrance. How are these ideas revealed in the artwork we'll see? Well, I'll defer to Winnie on that particular question because I think her work engages with that idea a lot. For my work, I chose my space specifically because it was surrounding uh, mausoleums. And there was an empty space that I was quite drawn to because there was so much light and space for me to use as a canvas. And during the past two years, I've been missing this holiday called tomb sweeping. In my culture and background, which is Chinese, death is not a sad event. We do celebrate life and death, but in a way that's more of a celebration of life and ritualistic offerings by burning money, which is called hell money. (laughs) If you read the fine print. (laughs) And there's also paper goods that you can burn for the afterlife. And you'll see them offered in little Chinatown shops in New York, where I'm from. You can burn cars, you can burn mansions, you can burn gold and... Not not a whole, you know, real life mansion. Not a real life (laughs) mansion, but more like a like a mini mansion that will be enlarged in the afterlife and all the things that you want them to have and be taken care of. My family in particular likes to say that they're burning money for my grandma and grandpa who loves to play mahjong (laughs) and gamble Um, so they can have some spending money for that. Now, you are first-generation American, Winnie. I read that your mother is Chinese-American, your father Vietnamese. Are the traditions you describe specific to Buddhism? What religion, what philosophy do these practices relate to? They relate to the Buddhist traditions and rituals. In my family in particular, we go all out for the holidays. But in everyday life, we will live more as like a modern American family. I find that we make it our own when we celebrate tomb sweeping every year. In this, these two past years in particular, I've been missing this holiday and my family still does it. And I see pictures. It always feels like a picnic. (laughs) The tomb sweeping as a picnic. Yes. Tomb sweeping is like spring cleaning every year. If you can imagine dust of a broom and just like dusting off the tombstone head and burning incense, um, which are called joysticks, and laying out teacups, bakery goods, and sticky rice. And my family loves to bring a whole butcher block <laughs> and roast pork mm. uh, called sulap and chop it up and present it in front along with maybe a bottle of vodka (laughs) and tea 
and we burn so much paper which symbolizes money and things that represent goods and items and money and just currency for the afterlife and after everything is burned said and done we wrap up tomb sweeping we devour (laughs) all (laughs) offerings ourselves Winnie, would you describe your piece, your installation? Sure. In my installation, I propose to make a four-piece mixed-media sculptural forms um, based on the idea of mausoleas, since they always intrigue me, because there's such grand structures that are also grand gestures to memorialize people that are important or have great wealth and having neither. (laughs) I always wondered what's in there. Can I go in? Can I hang out? Can I have one? (laughs) And so the idea that I wanted to portray was an experience to be more attainable and by that I'm shrinking it down and making it viewable in multiple ways. I'm using eye holes and opening literal doors and having windows and by imagining just ripping off the roof. (laughs) Well, listening to you describe your fascination with the mausoleum It actually seems very logical to go to the connection with Chinese Buddhism because, I mean, essentially the mausoleum is sort of a temple, isn't it? I would think so. Um, I've been to many temples around New York and New Jersey, and I recently found one in Atlanta. I passed by and there's this giant statue being built, and I was very excited about it. I think in a way it is directly inspired by temples and monasteries where it's a place to reflect in a more public setting. I do think that the lived use of of mausolea, although that might sound strange to say the lived use of mausolea, (laughs) very much reflects that temple concept. To this day, we have many descendants who make their annual pilgrimage to their ancestors' mausoleum. Uh, And, you know, much like the tomb sweeping holiday, they come and they get rid of the cobwebs, sweep it out. And truly, the Victorians cared for family graves in a very similar way. It's honestly part of what ultimately led to Oakland becoming, as our director emeritus David Moore would call it, a quote-unquote weedy mess in the 70s, <laughs> uh, because the Victorians couldn't fathom the idea that their family members wouldn't come back to care for their grave sites. And so there was no, in, in contemporary or more modern cemeteries, you have what's called perpetual care, uh, which is essentially an endowment that pays for the continued upkeep of a family's burial lot. Uh, and the Victorians didn't have that. They assumed the family members would always come back and plant new plants and do the weeding. Uh, and so as families moved away or some families died out, that a lot of these grave sites stopped being cared for. It really became essential for historic Oakland Foundation to exist, to come in and, uh, and be the caretakers for Oakland Cemetery. The artistic installations highlight the hidden stories 
found within the gardens and architecture of Oakland Cemetery. Mary, what are some examples of hidden stories that will be featured this year? Well, for two of our installations, one by Bianca Walker and one by Dorothy O'Connor and Sephora Thompson, the artists engage a great deal with unmarked burials uh, within the historic Black burial grounds of Oakland. Bianca Walker creates these forms that are painted on drop cloth with house paint that are inspired by the unmarked graves of the Black Burial Grounds. And so she took a list of names for whom there is no grave marker. And with some basic material about their lives, you know, their age, uh, sometimes we have an occupation, but many of the records are, are very scarce. They imagine a form for them based on the time in which they live. They give an identity almost to these people for whom it would be very easy to forget their lives because they don't have that physical marker in a space. In Zipporah Thompson and Dorothy O'Connor's work, they create a flock of 16 birds uh, and using materials that are inspired by traditional funerary practices such as stone and ceramic, these birds become representative of the individuals buried in Oakland, which in the historic Black burial grounds, you have both very prominent citizens who are well-known and left this undeniable mark on Atlanta. And they're buried next to individuals for whom not much is necessarily known, that people whose story was largely lost to time. And so these birds end up representing messengers almost, carrying the stories of these individuals, regardless of their status in life, upwards. It's a way to kind of connect the earth and spiritual realms. Uh, And they're going to be hung in one of the magnolias, this beautiful old magnolia tree in the historic Black burial grounds. And I think that the way that they engage in these stories not only is very meaningful, but makes people pause and consider the history that inspired them. It's very easy in Oakland to forget that you're surrounded by 70,000 people. It's so beautiful (laughs) and it's such a peaceful respite within the city. And creating an opportunity for people to pause and reflect upon that, I think, is very special. Mary, are there any other artists whose works will be featured that you would like to talk about? Yes. Jeffrey Loy is going to be featured in North Public Grounds. Uh, You may have seen some of his work on the Beltline. He uses metalwork to create these botanical forms. And I'm very excited to have his work featured because the botanicals are such an important part of our normal Illumin programming. Showcasing the spring gardens at Oakland, as much as the artwork is such an attraction for that particular event, the gardens are just as vital to its success. And so his botanical forms make reference to that. And I'm delighted to have them on display. I also wanted to add, you mentioned with this year, we're exploring the themes of intimacy and grief. And that's something that the foundation has been engaging with more and more. Although we may be better known for our historical content, there's something very important about honoring that traditional and essential aspect of the site, that it is a place for mourning. And so, for instance, last year, 
for Juneteenth, the evening before Juneteenth, we held a remembrance walk. And this was in the wake of, of course, the terrible murder of George Floyd and the increased attention and emphasis placed on police brutality. And we recognized the need for our community to have a site to come together and mourn together, especially before Juneteenth, which is a celebratory holiday. You know, this is something that you want to be honoring with celebration, not with mourning. Uh, And so the evening before, we invited folks to come to the cemetery. We commissioned a local writer, Amina McIntyre, who is also one of our scriptwriters for Capturing the Spirit of Oakland, to create a litany for liberation, which references this history that's contained within Oakland, uh, the history of, yes, discrimination and, yes, violence based on race, but also resistance and community and that powerful history that can be found within the Black Burial Grounds at Oakland and the way that it reflects Atlanta's story at large. And so grief is something that we want to honor every opportunity at Oakland. And I think the artwork that's going to be on display touches that subject and honors that history especially after the last year that people have had with COVID-19 and everything that's happened. Well, yeah, in light of the pandemic, I wondered about tours. Were all tours virtual or were, you know, being outside, were you able to have in-person events? So we were eventually able to hold smaller group tours, as well as hybrid events where you had some content online, some content in person. We're very lucky that Oakland is a large outdoor space. You know, as many other museums and historic sites had to shutter their doors last year because of COVID-19, we were able to stay open and remain this vital resource for our community. And Arts at Oakland this year, we wanted to pay tribute to that quality of Oakland. Um, as a resource, uh, as something that exists for the community. And that's why this year is free and open to the public. It's a service to give back to our community. I was very grateful to have Oakland Cemetery be open to the public because they draw a lot of inspiration from all the botanicals and intricate motifs because there's so much symbolism. It's a quiet place to reflect personally for me. And recently I was out there while measuring tape and this lady and this kid was passing me by and she smiled and said, we're not normal people, are we? (laughs) (laughs) And I automatically said, not at all. (laughs) But in reality, I think it should be normalized and more appreciated. Working on a piece in a cemetery was very cathartic for me and also made me very nostalgic especially since I missed the two years um, with my family due to the pandemic. And during that time, I thought about all the traditional rituals we used to do together. And now I am doing it in my own way (laughs) Mm -hmm. through this art installation, as well as drawing inspiration from the styles of Oakland Cemetery, both its elements through view arts, neoclassism, Gothic revival and the eclectic style, which I all love. <laughs> yes. Well, I think what you're saying highlights that Oakland is 
in addition to a cemetery, a traditional burial ground, it is a vast outdoor museum and uh, garden. And Mary, from what you describe, it's also a gathering place for community, whether that is in the form of arts or on another level to reconcile with grief. Absolutely. And cemeteries have played that role for many, many years. There's just less public awareness about about that in the present. Victorian garden cemeteries were created for the living. They were places of recreation. Oakland Cemetery is Atlanta's oldest public green space. Uh, And so finding ways to celebrate that tradition is of vital importance to us. Mary Margaret Fernandez, Oakland Cemetery Special Events Coordinator and Volunteer Manager, with artist Winnie Duong, whose works will be featured in Arts at Oakland. The event begins tomorrow, and the artwork will be on view through May 31st. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Fullness is a solo exhibition of works by the artist Jamal Barber on view now at the Mint Gallery. The show contains mixed media work and paintings that manifest self-affirming blackness, separate from a world unwilling to engage with it. The artist is with us now via Zoom to tell us more about his work. Jamal Barber, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I appreciate you having me on. What does fullness mean in the context of this exhibition? Uh, fullness is a way that I was thinking about my work, especially when the pandemic came around. I am work primarily as a printmaker, so... Uh, when the lockdown happened, like the print studio I used, Atlanta Printmaker Studio closed. Uh, you couldn't get to Georgia State. So all the work that I was planning on printing couldn't be printed. And so I had to come up with a new way because I still had to do my thesis. And I ended up painting. And in the process of exploring painting, I really examined my print work and decided what would I change now that it's a new medium, a new process and this new exploration. I don't have to talk about the same thing. So a lot of what is social commentary, right? Talking about uh, the Black identity and Black struggle, but switching to painting just gave me an opportunity to talk about different things. And it was just like, you know, you're at home, locked down with your family. It's like my Blackness at that point was more about my family, my kids, my wife, uh, how we were surviving, what we did to find joy and happiness. And 
kind of an outlook for the future. And I think that's what I tried to do with the paintings. Yeah. In your artist statement, you write that you were preoccupied with social issues that intersect with blackness and culture. During the pandemic, you say you realized your work tied an inextricable link between the black experience and struggle. So how did the time you spent at home with family largely isolated from the outside world yield changes in your perspective as well as your art? Yeah, I think I was I was looking for I, I was in a different mind state, right? So I, I said, tell everybody, it's like, you didn't know if he was going to have toilet paper or meat, you know, for the, for a long time, the meat packing plants had got COVID out and closed down. So it's like, you know, everything was kind of in a panic. And when, you know, you're at that point where nothing is certain, uh, the only thing that was certain was my, my family, right? So you got two kids. I can't just be here worried about the outside world. You know, George Floyd happened, worried about George Floyd and, like it's too much, especially when you can't move around, you can't do anything about it, right? Uh, you might get a virus. We lost uh, two family members early in the pandemic. Oh, and it was just, yeah, it was just, uh, it wasn't, I didn't feel like I had the energy to keep fighting. And so I had to reposition myself in order to be able to make something in order to be happy about making it. And so, you know, I leaned in on my family, leaned in on uh, just the everyday things that we were doing, like riding bikes and, you know, uh, watching movies and playing games with the kids, like that kind of stuff that redefined my experience. So it wasn't so much about the outside world. It was about us, like sitting there at the house and and how I want them to live, too. So with this, how would you define blackness now? I think blackness, uh, it changes. Right. And. I didn't, didn't make this show necessarily to say that my previous work was invalid, like it's very valid. But in between Tamir Rice and George Floyd and like all the other crazy events, you know, the Voter Rights Act that's coming up and and all this stuff that's against us, like in between those moments, like we still talk to my mama, right? We still like hug my kids and, and ride bikes. We still find those moments of joy. And I think it's just a full perspective. So as much as that struggle is a part of who we are and what we do and what I'm about, this other part is also what I'm about. And that's the stuff that I don't show as much. And so you can't you can't just continue to show the same thing like you like that part of it that became so much of my life for those, you know, those lockdown months. Like, I'm never going to forget that that time with my family. And so that blackness had to me now has to be about that, too. And how do how do I express it? How do I show it, you know? Throughout this exhibition, you incorporate vivid colors and abstract shapes. One of your paintings is called The Other Side of Heaven. Would you describe this work and share the story behind it? Yeah, so this was about, like I said, we lost two family members in April. And then uh, in November, we lost another a uh, great artist, a uh, friend, mentor of mine, George Knott. And, you know, between those, that's a long time to still be struggling with this thing. And when you lose people, it's always this moment of where they have moved on. They can be happy in this new place where they are, but you're here and you have the sadness and the, and the memories and even 
when we can't get together and mourn properly like we used to? You know, what do you do with that feeling? It's the other side of heaven. Like when they leave and go, you're left here. And so it's like a dividing line. So in that piece, it's a woman uh, and half of her is colorful and vibrant, has ascended. I think it's a, a bird, a dove at the top that's ascending too. And on the other side is, I, I kind of think of it as the physical body being reclaimed by nature is covered in leaves. And I mean, that's what's left, right? That's what we, that's what we have, this body that we have put so much memory and, and love into. And that's the other side of it, right? This is two sides of it. It's the freedom of ascending and it's the mourning. And, you know, I think that was a, a, a great description of how I was feeling at the time. Beautifully rendered, too. Thank you. There are several allusions to youth and growth in these works. One of your pieces is called Growing, Growing, and another is called Boys Become Men. The first is vibrant and abstract, and the latter is monochromatic and a more realistic portrayal of a boy and a man. What do these two distinct works represent? So the the Boys Become Men was first. I think that was the last print I made before the lockdown happened. And so I was already thinking about family and fatherhood and like how I was relating to my son. I always said that my son like looks just like me. So hmm. when I see him, I can't help but see myself. And that puts you in a completely different mind frame. Um, but when I was painting I didn't want to render him uh, specifically, right? I wanted to render like the feeling of him, like in the morning when he comes to wake us up, like he's like taller, like overnight. And it's like, he's always changing. He's always growing. He's always like the next conversation I have with him, he'll say a word that I didn't know he knew. <laughs> and like, it's, it's that feeling of seeing him become something. And so that's why I got the, it's, it's really abstract piece. Uh, the only thing I rendered really was the feet. There are other feet rendered in the show too. So it's kind of a connecting thread, but that feet uh, represents the genetic material I gave him. And that's all that I hold on to. And everything else is him. Everything else is him growing and becoming, being a part of the universe and just becoming his own person. And he's a different person every time I see him. Like it's great just to talk to him every day. Like, cause it's, uh, you know, you just watch somebody become themselves. Like, you know, that, that parenthood thing is, is a, it's a big thing for me. Oh, I'm with you on that. And, and it only gets better if you can imagine. Yeah. 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 I, I have a conversation with my daughter. She's 12 now. And, you know, our conversations are, are very different, but it's like, I'm, I have so much fun, like talking with her. I just walk into her room and just pick with her sometimes <laughs> she, because she's got her own attitude her own way of looking at stuff and you know it's, it's just a, it's just a joy you know to be a part of it to spend time together at home even if it was not a good reason that took you there exactly overall do you think these paintings in your show capture a different phase in the evolution of your thinking about blackness jamal yeah absolutely absolutely this is this is a much more expansive way of looking at it right and and just having being forced to like consider my my art myself 
uh, and my subject matter differently because of the pandemic, like it changed me. And and just being in that process for so long, I mean, it, it, that's a long time to be sitting with your thoughts and and trying to figure out how to paint as a, as, I mean, I'm a printmaker, right? I, I carve wood and make screen prints. So picking up a paintbrush was completely different. So you had to learn different things. You had to consider different thoughts. And I think that's all part of the creative process. So it has to change, right? I don't know if I can make the same work I was making before, just kind of, uh, I made bold graphic uh, representations and would, you know, saying assertive talking about identity and, you know, fighting white supremacies. And it, I don't, I don't know if I'm that same person anymore. Like I'd, I'd have to try to pick it back up, but you know, it, it's just a, you know, as a creative, you're always looking for a reason to be creative. And I think I, I found it like somewhere along the line. So struggle won't inform your work from now on, or is it just on a back burner? I think it's on a back burner because a lot of, I always say that I was, I was sort of radicalizing the work by Trayvon Martin. Right. And, you know, that seemed like so long ago, but it's stuff happening all the time. So I'm not going to be as restrictive on myself as I was before. Like I had so many rules about what I was talking about and how I was talking about it, that that feels restrictive to just put it in perspective of this, this death at this time. And this fight means this like that. And not like, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's part of a continuum. Maybe it's part of getting us into a different mind state to get to another place. Like it's all kinds of possibilities that open up. So I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm never going to talk about struggle because it's part of it. Like, you know, I'm still angry about a lot of stuff, but you can choose what you express. And I think uh, giving myself that option has been, been fruitful. You know, it, it, it took me to a, a lot of different places and made a lot of different images that I never thought I would make. So it's exciting. It, it's very exciting to hear you describe this realization and uh, a very hopeful phase that you've entered. Do you also hope this exhibition will change the perspective of your audience and people who buy your artwork? I, I hope they can come along for the ride, right? Because <laughs> a lot of it is, you know, when you're making art, I don't, I don't make art specifically for the audience, but I'm hoping that I'm, I'm hitting on some kind of universal truth that somebody can hear and relate to like out there. And so hopefully like these messages, this new message will find just as many people as the old messages. And so even if you heard my old message and saw like to be free with uh, a man being pulled down and still trying to have pride and be himself, maybe this will fits into is the next phase of it. And so if those people can grow into the work or find new people, I mean, that's great. You know, I just hope that I'm a good enough artist, <laughs> right. To put, to put that emotion, to put that connection into the work. And, you know, once you make it, you'll find somebody, hopefully. Jamal Barber, I have really enjoyed our conversation hearing you speak about your artwork, parenthood, and a very hopeful attitude. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate you. Artist Jamal Barber. His solo exhibition, Fullness, is on view at the Mint Gallery through June 5th. 
Black Voices from Big Brown is a creative and ambitious project at UPS, chronicling the experience of 29 current and former black executives at the company. Longtime journalist and UPS communications expert April Nelson helped to spearhead the project. She joins us now with Nikki Clifton, president of Social Impact at the UPS Foundation. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. April, how did you first become involved with UPS? Well, uh, I was coming off of a journalism career. I'd like to call it successful. I started out in radio, just like your program, and that was my favorite thing. And then I got into television, had a great career, a long career, actually, in South Florida, as well as the Atlanta market. I worked at Fox 5. I worked at CBS 46. Yes. Took a few years off from that to figure out what I was going to do next in my life. UPS came a-calling. So I I took advantage of the opportunity, not quite knowing what I was getting myself into. But once I figured out they were not going to require me to drive a package car, I thought, well, I can do this. (laughs) How did your background in journalism help you with the project Black Voices from Big Brown? Oh, that is a fantastic question. I think it was the thing that made me know that I could do it, right? This whole thing started with one of the honorees featured in the book, Ken Jarvis. He was recognized as our first African-American package car driver at the company. He was hired in 1957. And he and I have become very good friends. He's, he's not only my friend, but my mentor. And we talk all the time. And in 2019, He called me up. I knew that he had been trying to write his memoirs. And he said, April, I need to finish this and I really need your help. Because of my journalism background, I knew that I could guide him. I'd never written a book, but I knew I could help him figure it out. And that's where this whole thing started. Wow. How did Ken advance from delivering packages to becoming a UPS executive? Being uh, recognized as our first African-American package car driver, I was actually working on another project when I met him. And it was the project was about UPSers who actually knew and had a relationship with our founder, Jim Casey. And he told a story about, um, you know, being a driver. And then in his mind, it was sort of a promotion. He got a little more uh, money, but he was delivering mail. Right. He went from being a driver to delivering mail. And he had to deliver mail to Jim Casey's office one day. And Jim said, sit down. He was on the phone, but he said, sit down, let's talk. Hmm. And he had a long conversation with our founder. And very few people got a chance to talk to our founder in that way. And I think he said a lot of people didn't even believe him. But it was that relationship with our founder that just it deepened. And they formed a partnership, sort of a mentor-mentee-like partnership. And he started advancing through the ranks. And that's how it happened. Impressive. Would you talk about the different media you use to showcase the stories of these 29 African-American leaders at UPS? Yeah, this started out as a Black History Month project. We started on it January of 2020. And it was supposed to be 
a Black History Month project for this year. And we said, we're going to do a book, right? And Ken Jarvis's wish was to have a book. And again, it wasn't quite what he had in mind. He was going to make it just his story. And I said to him, I, I said, Ken, if you write a book, it needs to be about the tree that bore the fruit. You are the tree and you have bore if I'm saying that correctly, you, you, you bore so many fruits, there's fruit all over the ground. And those are the UPSers who have followed your path. And so once he locked around that idea, I had to figure out how to push it forward. And so I pushed it forward through the African-American BRG as we were trying to find a really marquee project, something really important and substantial for Black History Month of 2021, little did we know the Black Lives Matter movement was going to happen <laughs> in the middle of this project. And that's when we knew it, it took on a whole different meaning from there. Wow. Would you explain the acronym? The African American Business Resource Group. At UPS, we have a lot of acronyms for like almost everything. So we call our business resource groups just the BRGs. There's the women's, women's leadership development. There's the um, Hispanic BRG. They call it Crescere, um, the Asian BRG. We have a number of them. What does behind the scenes of Black Forces examine? Uh, the behind the scenes of our production. That's, that's what it sort of examines. If you're talking about the behind the scenes clips that are on the website, we show some photographs that we took as, say, some of our honorees were getting ready in the green room, things like that. It was just sort of some things that did not quite make the book, if you will, or didn't make any of the videos, just so that people could really see the honorees as fun and human. And you have a podcast you're offering as well. Yes, yes. In addition to our hard copy book, we have the e-publication. And then on the website, the podcasts are available. Those are introduced by Jason Martin. He's one of uh, my UPS uh, African-American BRG colleagues who helped to uh, co-create the project and, and shape it and move it along. So we allowed him to introduce each one of the interviews via a podcast, and those can be heard on SoundCloud, Apple Music, and Spotify. Nikki, you are the president of Social Impact and the UPS Foundation. What is the UPS Foundation? What kind of work do you do? Well, I just took the helm of the foundation in November, and we exist to lead the company's global citizenship efforts and corporate social impact. I'm excited that this year we will celebrate 70 years of work that reflects our mission to build safer, more resilient and inclusive communities around the globe. And so we do this through centering around four core areas, health and humanitarian relief. So think about all the things that UPS is doing to advance the vaccine around the world, equity and economic empowerment, Local community engagement is marshalling our Brown Army of more than 500,000 UPSers through volunteerism in local communities. And then planet protection, which is our environmental stewardship. And we've got a goal of planting 50 million trees by 2030. So we really think that the best way to give back to the communities where we live and where we work 
is to marshal our collective strengths that link our philanthropic dollars with our logistics expertise, our transportation assets, and then the skills and passions of our people. How is UPS advancing equity and justice internally and externally? This has been an amazing journey that that we've been on in partnership with the work that April just described, really since the unfortunate murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. We have always valued diversity and inclusion as a core mission, but our work really accelerated in the last year. And we were inspired by the call to action of our new CEO, Carol Tomei, who recognized that, that we needed to examine how to be better, both internally and externally. And in terms of doing that, we created a people-led initiative called the UPS Equity, Justice, and Action Task Force. And I chair that task force. And we were a cross-functional group that's formed to expedite solutions to make UPS stronger internally while also leveraging our scale and scope in the battle of systemic inequality externally. What were your thoughts when you found out April was creating this project? You know, initially I thought, this is awesome because we had not seen any real effort as a collective to honor the African-Americans on the shoulders. You know, I stand on their shoulders. I've been at UPS for 17 years. And I thought, this is ambitious, but this is awesome. And, and <laughs> how, can we, how can we help? That was my immediate thought. <laughs> oh, wow. You mentioned how you had no idea in January 2020 that we would face the tragic deaths and escalating reckoning with racial injustice in our country and globally. How is this project reflective of the larger scope? I think that this project, one, is a recognition of the Black excellence that we've had at UPS for so many decades. And I think telling those stories, and April has done such a beautiful job of highlighting, you know, folks that have started as loaders, unloaders, drivers, sometimes part-time clerks, and really showing that climb and the ability to achieve at the highest levels of our company when people are just given a chance. And I think that's what this is about, showing that opportunity and opening the door without respect to race produces excellence. You just have to invest. And that's what, that's what this project has highlighted for us. Well, we hear so much the expression being seen. I'm thinking about the story April told of Ken Jarvis being in your founder's executive office and just being asked to sit down and to become acquainted and what a difference that makes on so many levels on the individual's life and for the betterment of the organization. I think that's right. And when I think about the opportunity that, that April has opened up for others in our company to see the leaders that came before them, and then hopefully to see the promise in the leaders that are right here in our midst, I think that's the beautiful piece of this project. And it has attracted, and I think 
raised awareness and pride, not only in our black workforce, but in our entire workforce. And I think that's really, really powerful. The other thing that we really wanted to highlight and showcase with this project is the fact that UPS has been working at diversity and all of the other things that come along with it for a lot longer than many companies. And the thing that I asked all of the honorees during their interviews is, where do you see UPS? Where's our place during this time in history? And all of them said, we should be the leader. We should be showing companies how we have done it. Maybe not perfectly, but this is what we have been working on since the 50s. When many of these folks told stories about not even being able to get jobs at other companies because of the color of their skin. Ken Jarvis, one of them, when he returned from his stint in the Air Force with a letter from the California Highway Patrol promising him a job upon his return when he went for his interview, he showed them the letter, but they said, we do not hire Negroes. He was able to go to the Urban League and get some help and they directed him to UPS. So UPS hired him during a time when he could not be hired by so many other companies that he went to, knocking on those doors. So we want to highlight the fact that UPS has been a leader in this space, and we want to continue to be a leader. In 1998, Ken Jarvis created the March Foundation, and the projects from Black Voices at Big Brown will benefit March. What does the March Foundation support? Well, in addition to a number of community activities, the main thing that we've agreed that the proceeds from this project will go to is to fund scholarships for historically Black colleges and universities. The March Foundation was built upon that principle initially, and then it sort of expanded over the years. And I can tell you during covid This foundation has been instrumental in several communities, helping with food shortages, food banks across the nation. There are so many Americans struggling right now. They've been providing meals. They've been providing computers for middle school, elementary school, high school students, and internet connections so that they could continue to study. It's things like that. They've done voter registration drives, a number of community initiatives. I'm thinking about your asking the honorees where the company should be in terms of the company or the foundation being a role model for all others. Have you thought about working with other companies or corporations to create something similar for them? I've definitely been thinking about it. And the AABRG, we're making some traction and forming some partnerships with other company affinity groups and trying to share the book and communicate what we're doing. But maybe Nikki can expound upon it. But yes, it is our desire to share this work and inspire other companies. I mean, we're not saying that everybody's got to do the exact same thing, but it's to take the core mission and the ingredients, if you will from this project, and then develop them even further. To be a template of sorts. Yes. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, what's unique about UPS is, you know, as April has talked about, that that we have for decades been a source of economic development, particularly in the African-American community. And I think about one of the honorees that was just honored in April's book, Cal Tyler, who recently donated $20 million to Morgan State University. And so when you think about that, the multiplier effect of investing early on in people and having that community mindset, then you end up developing leaders like the men of the March Foundation who then give back to their communities in ways that you you just can't even imagine. Nikki Clifton, president of Social Impact and the UPS Foundation. She was joined by April Nelson, co-creator and project lead. You can find more information about Black Voices from Big Brown on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about a new puppet show from Theater Emery, Lapsic, the Clever Pup, Think Yiddish Lassie. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to members-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.